Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Ben Bradley Jr., author of The Forgotten. Ben Bradley Jr., author of The Forgotten, How the People of One Pennsylvania County Elected Donald Trump and Changed America. The one Pennsylvania county you picked is Luzerne County. Of all the counties in the country, why did you pick Luzerne County to write about? Well, I was fascinated, uh, like many journalists, with the rise of Donald Trump. And here was the most unusual candidate for president, perhaps, that we've um, ever had, a candidate who said and did things that would have destroyed any other um, presidential candidacy. And I was looking for an interesting, uh, a different way to write about um, his election. And combing through the vote in the three Rust Belt swing states which decided the election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I discovered Luzerne County in, in northeast Pennsylvania, uh, county seat Wilkes-Barre, and Hazleton is the second city, which uh, played uh, a, a critical role in Trump's election. This is a traditionally Democratic county, economically depressed still, and uh, hadn't voted for a Republican for president since 1988, George Bush Sr. And uh, Obama had carried it twice, but it surged in the other direction for Trump in 2016. And he piled up such a margin in that one county that it was 60% of his winning margin in Pennsylvania. He won the state by 44,000 votes and 26,000-odd votes of those votes came from Luzerne County. So without this one county, he wouldn't have won the state or perhaps the presidency to the extent Pennsylvania's demographics are similar to Michigan's uh, and Wisconsin's. So I uh, decided to visit Luzerne less than a month after the election and start poking around. Is that um, your first time visiting there? Yes, yeah. Um, and I began interviewing Trump voters with a view to see, seeing if this might be a window into the election, a different way of uh, doing a deep dive on the Trump phenomenon, if you will. And um, after it, I decided that it was a, a, that that was a viable approach. And after interviewing about 100, I narrowed the list of about 12 people that the book focuses on, including uh, Lou Barletta, who's the congressman from that area, now running for um, Senate against Bob Casey. And um, the way I chose these people was largely subjective. I, I think that they, they represented different slices of the Trump constituency and had good stories to tell and uh, told them in an interesting way. How did you separate the people who voted for Trump for, 
for people who did not? I mean, how, how did you know who to ask well, of the hundred? You know, I do, uh, I did what reporters do when you, came, when you came to town. I was looking for Trump voters. And so I visited with, uh, you know, a newspaper editor, uh, another reporter, uh, this is at the, at the Times Leader, one of the two papers in Wilkes-Barre, and uh, interviewed uh, four or five state reps and state senators, people who had their finger uh, on the pulse of the county, uh, a talk show host, and uh, bus business people uh, wanted to learn who the, who the leading Trump supporters were and contacted them and, you know, one will lead you to another. Were people open to talking to you or were they a little skeptical of this Maybe guy? a little skeptical uh, from at first. I'm from Boston, uh, Massachusetts, a very blue state, so they pe pegged me for a liberal right away and, and uh, maybe were a little suspicious of that. But um, you know how it works in, in, uh, in journalism and reporting. You, I think if you approach people respectfully and listen and uh, ask them to share their story, uh, my experience is that they basically um, are flattered by that and, and want to talk. When you first visited Luzerne County, what were your first impressions for people who have never been there? What, what do you see when you go there? Well. Uh, I'd say it's fraying at the edges. You know, this is a town uh, that uh, Luzerne County, coal was the backbone of that, of that county. Coal is long gone, replaced by manufacturing, which is also mostly gone. Either, um, either jobs lost abroad or um, to automation. And these factories are no more. Used to be a thriving garment industry there, dress factories, uh, run mostly by women, and uh, those are those are gone. And the um, uh, there's a uh, the beginnings of a, uh, a warehouse business there. The the Luzerne, it's in the Hazelton area, sits at the intersections of uh, Interstates 80 and 81. And that's a popular destination for uh, warehouses like Amazon and uh, a few others. But those are minimum wage jobs. And uh, it's still, uh, I think the unemployment rate has gone down a bit with the, along with the national unemployment rate. So things are perhaps uh, a little bit better. But young people uh, mostly leave because they see limited economic opportunity there. Is there any reason for them to stay? Not really. If they want to earn a big salary, uh, if they want to, if somebody ambitious and wants to um, earn, you know, eighty thousand dollars, maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year, this, the, those jobs are hard to find in Luzerne. Now, one of the things you write about is the influx of uh, Hispanic immigrants or people of Hispanic nationality moving there from New Jersey and New York. Mm -hmm. And you, you say in 2000, Hazleton was 95% white and 5% Hispanic, but by 2016, 16 years later, the percentage had jumped from 5% to 52%. Right. Did you get much of a sense for how that is going down with people who have long-time residents? Well, there was, there's been some white flight. I think there's still some tensions. Um, but I think 
both sides are getting more and more used to each other. There's an outfit called the Hazelton uh, Integration Project, which um, has sprung up um, partly funded by Joe Madden, the uh, manager of the Chicago Cubs, who is from Hazelton and is trying to uh, smooth the way, help smooth the way for the newly arrived uh, Hispanic uh, immigrants. But uh, I think people are, are still feeling their way on that. What's the attraction for Hispanics? Why would they want to move to Hazleton or to Wilkes-Barre? Because of, of these warehouse jobs that are there and um, minimum wage and uh, a much lower cost of living than uh, in New York or New Jersey. Now, you mentioned that the... These are mostly Dominicans, sorry. You uh, mentioned that the uh, area was traditionally Democratic and they voted for a lot of Democratic presidents. Why, going back historically, was it Democratic? Well, it was Republican way back. Um, you know, it was uh, somewhat uh, cyclical. It's a, it was a strong union town and uh, working class. And I think those people traditionally have gravitated towards uh, the Democrats. But I think in this day and age, um, parties are becoming uh, less and less uh, attractive to people, that they don't toe the line, toe the party line, and are more inclined to um, vote, vote the person, if you will, uh, rather than be tied by parties or, um, or issues. This was a great attraction for, um, uh, for Trump. Uh, I mean, a lot of his vote in Luzerne was from Democrats crossing over to vote Republican. And um, they told me that they didn't leave the party, the party left them. So when you started interviewing people, who'd you, well, what kind of questions did you ask? Well, I would start by asking about, you know, their, their own personal story and uh, what led them to Trump and um, just trying to understand the phenomenon better. These are people who felt uh, marginalized by uh, falling wages. They felt uh, isolated. They felt um, that, that the huge swaths of the country weren't paying attention to them. They felt that uh, a culture dominated by uh, Hollywood and network television had become a, a liberal culture, essentially, uh, that condescended to them. Uh, and Trump came along and uh, filled a void. They felt that Hillary Clinton um, mostly ignored them and condescended to them when she was paying attention to them. Her famous comment, the deplorables. Was there much variety to the reasons people voted for Donald Trump, or were you kind of hearing the same story over and over? Well, um, some variety, but I think, the, I think it, it was more cultural than economics. Um, they felt in a mood to um, knock over the table and break some china um, and take their chances 
with this very unusual candidate. Um, one local uh, Democratic state senator uh, in Luzerne, John Udacek, told me that while Obama had hope and change, Trump had knocked, door, knocked down the door and change. Uh, they wanted to send a message with this guy. And um, uh, I think some did it with uh, some trepidation, not knowing exactly what the result would be, but um, felt in the mood to, uh, to really send a message. What did the Democratic Party do wrong to lose those voters? I think they took them for granted and felt that they would always be there. Hillary Clinton didn't spend, uh, I don't believe, any time in, in Luzerne County, even though she has family roots up the road in uh, Scranton. And um, I think that she mostly took them for granted. She was largely trying to um, replicate the Obama path to the presidency, which was minority voters, women, um, affluent suburban types, highly educated. And uh, despite her husband's advice, Bill Clinton, who had a much better uh, relationship with the white working class than Hillary did, she largely wrote off that group. Well, Joe Biden, from also from Luzerne Scranton. County, Scranton, Scranton. Uh, Lackawanna, Lackawanna County. Yeah. Um, what is it that that he has in connection to the the white working class? He's got a better uh, common touch, if you will. I think that that Biden uh, could have beaten Trump. Just a gut hunch, and um, the question is whether he's his time has passed or whether he's. Uh, going to give it another go, and whether people might think he's uh, too old. But um, I think that, that, that the Democrats uh, have to nominate somebody with um, blue-collar cred, and that Biden has that, and that, uh, that Hillary, for all her um, accomplishments as uh, you know, a senator, a former secretary of state, first lady, we probably never had a, someone with a better resume run for president, but she just seemed to rub a lot of people the wrong way. There are some comments in your book about the, the, the Democrats look down on us or they, 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 they think they're better than us. Is yes. there something to that? Well, you know, this, this, this stuff gets very squishy and subjective. You know, you almost have to put an individual voter uh, on the couch and uh, as, as their psychiatrist, if you will, and, and ask them that. But people felt that. People felt taken for granted. And, you know, they say you fall in love with your therapist because you feel listened to. And I think that these uh, people felt that Trump listened to them and they could relate to, to him. And uh, they felt that Hillary did not listen to them. How often would you get into an interview with somebody and think, this is just great? Well, that happened quite a few times. I was learning a lot, you know, um, coming from a blue state, Massachusetts, and uh, learning how 
a different um, constituency thinks about issues in different ways. And again, I was struck by the looking at the map of the election uh, results county by county. It's a sea of red with only blue pockets on either coast. And it, it's a reminder that we're probably a center-right country. So I was learning a lot. And I, one thing that, that still stands out to me as uh, heart-wrenching was the story of Oh, one of the women that I profiled in the book, Lynette Villano, uh, or she's in her early 70s, and um, told a heart-wrenching story about uh, how the election came between her and her grandson. This, this election um, did cause problems within families. Trump was such a contentious candidate, uh, such a polarizing candidate that um, there were often times when people uh, didn't know how to handle rifts in the family. But Lynette was one of those people, remember Trump's famous quote in the, in the campaign that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. Well, Lynette Villano was one of those. And she, on the day after the election, she texted her grandson, who at the time was a senior at Tulane University, and told him how happy she was that Trump had been elected. Well, the, the kid responded uh, harshly and um, texted her back that this is one of the worst things that ever could happen at the, at, uh, in America, and that Trump is going to um, take the country down the tubes. And she shared with me the entire text exchange and gave me permission to use it in the book. So I reprinted a lot of it verbatim. And to me, it illuminates the philosophical divide that exists in this country or, or that was caused by the election and how some families uh, were torn apart. Do you remember how she voted in the previous presidential elections? Oh, she's pretty hard, hardcore Republican. Uh, she's, uh, you know, what I would call a, a, an establishment Republican. Um, voted, uh, for, you know, uh, well, she, she, she voted Republican. She, uh, locally, she voted for Arlen Specter back in the day, you know, that kind of Republican. I want to ask you about another couple, Jessica Harker mm -hmm. and, uh, and her husband Ray. And you're right, in the 2016 election, Jess went all in for Trump, despite the fact that Ray thinks the president is a satanic fraud. This was a really interesting couple. I wanted to um, use profile an, an evangelical. Uh, Luzerne County is predominantly Catholic, but there's a growing evangelical population. And this was a very important constituency for Trump. Uh, evangelicals comprised perhaps 50% uh, of his entire vote, and he carried 80% of the evangelicals. And um, this woman, Jessica Harker, was, um, had been raised in Michigan in a Democratic household, uh, met her husband, Ray, who was a born-again Christian and became active in Republican politics. And he mentored his wife in both politics and religion. So uh, Trump came along in 2016 and unlike most uh, um, 
of the evangelical establishment, uh, he thought Trump was a fraud. He thought, you know, any woman who had, I mean, any uh, president, any person really who had an affair with a porn star, <laughs> by definition, was was out as far as an evangelical is concerned. But uh, to the leadership, the most important issues were. Uh, first, are you against abortion? And second, can you deliver and appoint conservatives to the Supreme Court? So he delivered on those. And uh, Jessica liked the, the, the Trump style and the, the cut of his jib, if you will. And, uh, but Ray thought he was a fraud. And so they, this really came between them. And they had to get into counseling to uh, help bridge their differences. And uh, she would tell him, we can't talk about Trump at home. It's a no-fly zone, she called it. When you interviewed them, were they together? Uh, no, I interviewed them separately. So you didn't get to see the interaction between them? No, not really. But I, I, I got a good, good, good flavor for it. Were there any people who you were just amazed that they voted for Trump, who were just uh, didn't fit the, the mold? Um, no, not really. Um, I'm not sure what the mold is. I mean, I, I, people, it's, it's private, you know. They vote for a candidate for their own reasons. But this is a guy who um, they, they just could relate to. They felt that, that uh, uh, again, that he listened to them and uh, he was what the country needed then. Any of them uh, college-educated, white-collar? Uh, some are white-collar. Uh, most are probably um, not college-educated. I would guess maybe half and half. You do interview a fellow by the name of Steve Smith, the former Ku Klux Klansman and skinhead who in 2012 was elected to the Luzerne County Republican Committee, thereby vaulting from the white underground into local political mainstream. What was he like to interview? Well, he's, uh, he was a reluctant interview, um, distrusted the press, but he's become a, a public figure in Luzerne County. I chose him because uh, race, let's face it, was, was an underlying factor in the election, if not a, a prominent factor. After all, Trump rose to prominence within the Republican Party um, on the strength of championing, championing the birther movement, uh, which alleged that Obama had not been born in the United States. And, you know, that's, that's a lie. And, of course, he'd been born in the United States. He proved it. It was humiliating for him to prove but Trump kept doubting it, and that was what um, pushed him up way up in the polls in the, uh, early on in 2015 when he first announced. And um, uh, to me, Steve Smith illustrated how Trump had legitimized the white underground. Uh, they felt comfortable coming out and talking about uh, white rights and uh, not white supremacy, they call it white nationalism, um, you know,
know, they're very anti-affirmative action. And this guy uh, got himself elected to a local Republican county office. And I thought that that was rather remarkable. And uh, he thought that Trump was the greatest thing since uh, sliced bread and uh, had helped legitimize white nationalism. Was he kind of the exception among the people you talked to, or did you kind of get an undercurrent that there was some of that? Well, no, I mean, he was the exception in, the, in, in, in terms of its, uh, of its baldness, if you will. Um, but Trump's core issue, perhaps, was illegal immigration, which had racial overtones. Uh, one of the guys that I profile in the book was Lou Barletta, who uh, the local congressman uh, running for, for uh, Senate against uh, Bob Casey now. And in some ways, he was Trump before Trump. In 2006, as mayor of Hazleton, he got this uh, ordinance, city ordinance passed, uh, preventing uh, businesses from doing business with the illegals and uh, making English the official language, et cetera, which was later ruled uh, unconstitutional. But he rode that issue to Congress. And um, uh, so when Trump emerged in uh, 2015, uh, Barletta was attracted to him and uh, was one of his earliest supporters in, in uh, Congress. And you write that uh, the city spent $1.4 million defending the uh, lawsuit against the bill that uh, the city Yes, jumped. yeah, they were sued by the ACLU and, and others, and they had to pay $1.4 million in court costs. Was the reaction to the uh, Hispanic influx into Hazleton uh, one of the drivers behind the support for Trump? In Luzerne? Yeah. I, I think it was. I think illegal immigration was, was uh, an important issue. Yeah, I do. Now, it's, it's hard not to read your name without realizing you have a rather famous name. But for people who are not familiar with you and your father, what, what was your father noted for? Well, he was editor of the Washington Post. He died uh, five years ago. And um, he was um, most noted for being the editor uh, when the Post uh, broke the Watergate story which led to um, the resignation of uh, President Nixon. And your mother's maiden name was Saltonstall. Is that a long, that's a long time Massachusetts politics name? Yeah, it's an old Yankee name uh, in Massachusetts. She was distantly related to um, Leverett Saltonstall, who was a former uh, Massachusetts senator. And uh, they were divorced when I was about eight or nine, and um, my mother and I settled in uh, Boston, and um, my father moved to Washington. When did you decide you wanted to get into the newspaper business? Well, out of college, um, I went into the Peace Corps in Afghanistan, of all places, and um, the fellow I worked for there was a um, newspaper editor at a small paper in California, the Riverside Press Enterprise. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do after uh, I got out of the Peace Corps. 
you know, who, who really knows what they want to do at age uh, 23 or 4. This guy suggested, uh, you know, I would, I'd been growing up in Boston. I was curious about seeing California. He said, why don't you come out and, and uh, work for me? He was returning to the paper after uh, working in the Peace Corps, taking a leave of absence. And uh, so I went out there and worked as a general assignment reporter. I wasn't really uh, conscious of uh, following my father, as it were. When, what year was this? This was early 70s. This was uh, 72, 73 in there, just as Watergate was uh, happening. Were you treated differently by your coworkers, or were you treated like well, he wasn't really you better show your stuff, or oh, definitely, something? definitely. He, yeah, he wasn't uh, by any means a household name uh, yet. Uh, he was getting there, um, and yeah, yeah. There's a, perhaps a little um, suspicion that you're a, a patronage hire. And uh, you, you damn well got to work twice as hard as the next guy to uh, show that you can cut the mustard. How did you learn the newspaper business? Well, at this paper, really. And, uh, you know, you do everything. You're, you're a, a cop reporter, general assignment, um, you know, features, a little bit of everything. And, uh, you know, the newspaper business is is really fun i think and uh, a place where you can still make a difference uh even though journalism in this country is uh really hurting uh newspapers especially because of uh, the influence of the internet how did you find yourself in boston well i landed in boston um you mean after after my professionally after, oh, professionally yeah well, I, I, I worked for uh, three or four years at the, uh, at the paper in Riverside, California, and um, uh, got very involved in a uh, murder case that I was covering out there, uh, which led to a book, and then I did another book, and, uh, and then I got an offer to uh, join the Boston Globe, which was my hometown paper, and so I came back east to, to do that. And you have a Pulitzer to your name? Well, Pulitzer, I, I mean, I, I was in charge of the, it's, it's a team thing, not an individual thing. Um, my last job at the Boston Globe was to be, uh, I, I was deputy managing editor in charge of uh, projects and investigations, and our investigation unit was called the Spotlight Team, and um, this was four reporters, and we got involved in uh, investigating sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, which led to uh, a series of articles in uh, 2002 documenting uh, through internal church records how priests in the Boston Archdiocese um, were passed around from parish to parish despite um, the senior leadership of the church knowing that these were troubled priests. And that, that story just uh, took off like no story I've ever been involved with before. And it went national and, and international. Um, but as you know, here in Pennsylvania, it, it's still uh, 
percolating with the release of this grand jury report by uh, your attorney general. Boston is a pretty Catholic town. So how, how was it received there? Well, um, the, we, were, we were concerned about that initially, but the, the reaction was, uh, go get them. They were outraged, people. Catholics were outraged that uh, the church sanctioned this and knew about it and uh, swept it under the rug and tried to cover it up. So it was very well received. Uh, the church apologized. Uh, cardinal Law, the, the uh, Cardinal Bernard Law, the late Cardinal Law, who was head of the Boston Archdiocese, apologized profusely for uh, a year or more in an effort to save his job, ultimately uh, unsuccessful effort. Uh, he resigned, but was given a, a, um, a very sweet landing spot in Rome where the Pope uh, appointed him head of one of the Vatican churches. And uh, that caused some more outrage. But uh, Catholics, rank and file Catholics, are, uh, are very upset about this. That was made into a movie. It was, surprisingly so. And you were portrayed in it. Well, I had, yeah, I, I was. And I had a little uh, cameo, which was fun. Um, yeah, you know, we, we thought that our work was uh, essentially done, if you will, when uh, two young women, uh, pretty inexperienced Hollywood producers, showed up at our door, and this is like five years after uh, the story broke, maybe uh, 2007 in there, and they said, we love this story and we want to make a movie about how you guys broke it. And we didn't take them seriously at first. They didn't have many credits. And, um, but we talked to them. And they went off for uh, another five years or so trying to get the movie made in Hollywood but kept getting the doors slammed in their face because it was a controversial subject and a lot of people weren't willing to tackle it. But then all of a sudden the financing came together a good director, uh, a good screenwriter, and uh, an A-list an ensemble cast, and pretty good movie. You were happy with the way it turned out? You yeah. Outraged at what they did with your book? No, no, no. It was that. It was based on the, the not a book, but the uh, our coverage, and um, they we knew they were sincere, and we trusted them, and. We all talked to them at length and showed them some of our uh, contemporaneous notes at the time. So these guys were serious, and, uh, and they did it right, I think. You also wrote a book about Ted Williams that you, you say took 10 years to write. It's, it's embarrassing, isn't it, to, to say <laughs> that? But I'm, I'm a great uh, Red Sox fan, and... Williams uh, had been a sort of a childhood hero of mine and a uh, very interesting man with uh, a, a complicated life. And I had just left the paper and resigned from the paper to write, to write this and uh, took my time, had a lot of fun, had 600 interviews. Uh, that takes some time. So, um, yeah, but this... Trump book, um, I, I had to treat as if I was on deadline, so that took me a lot less time.
How long from, uh, over what period of time did you do the interviews for this Trump book? From December 2016 to June of 2018. And did you go back afterwards to see, after Trump had been in office for a while, what uh, people's reaction had been? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, the the reporting uh, really didn't stop for a year and a half into his presidency. So I was well aware of uh, what these people thought of how he was doing in office and have stayed in touch with them uh, even since the book closed in June. And they say, the, the 12 people that I feature in the book, they say that if the 2020 election were to be held tomorrow, 11 of them would enthusiastically vote for Trump again. Only one has slipped into the uh, undecided column. You interviewed somebody, Luzerne County manager, David Pedri, and he suggested to uh, one group that uh, the corrections officers, that voting for Trump would be against their economic self-interest. He was working for the Democratic Party. Voting against, uh, voting for Trump would be against their economic self-interest. And he said they said they didn't care. They were all for voting him in anyway because it was time to shake things up. So there were people who knew that it was against their economic interests and voted for him anyway? Yeah. I, I, I don't think uh, everyone votes their pocketbook. I mean, a lot of people do. But um, there are some things that, that uh, uh, trump no pun intended, uh, economics. And that those are the cultural issues. And I think that these, these prison guards and others, it was a send, a send a message vote. They really wanted to upset the apple cart and uh, take their chances with this guy. Do you think this is a trend or is it they just wanted to get it out of their system and then go back to normal? Well, I, I think that's an that's important question uh, to consider because... Uh, Going forward, it'll be interesting to see whether whether this is a movement or more a cult of personality and therefore a one-off. And I think we'll know more after the uh, midterm elections coming up soon and uh, certainly by 2020. I have to but ask I wouldn't, I, I'm sorry, just to finish that thought, I wouldn't uh, bet against Trump. Uh, as controversial as he is. He's one of the few politicians that I've seen who doesn't seem to be interested in expanding his base. Um, he seems to tend to his base and not, be, not care about attracting other voters. He behaves more as president of his base than he does president of the country. Uh, on election night when he won, he did extend an olive branch out to uh, the other side saying it was time to unite the country. But since then, he's done nothing to try to unify the country. Uh, even two weeks after he was elected, he began going out. Uh, I think at that point he called them thank you rallies. Uh, but he's held these rallies, um, dozens of them, since being elected president. It's the permanent campaign. And uh, he goes to favored red states uh, or states where you know he'll get a, a good reception. And um, 
I think one of the one of the more important questions going forward is whether a Democrat w will emerge who's who will essentially run on a platform of trying to unite the country again. Is it unitable? Is the or is the gap between the left and right and the red and the blue too wide to to bring together within a reasonable amount of time? Well, I'm not sure, but I found even the Trump people. Um, as dug in as they are, concerned about uh, the extent to which we're polarized as a country and thinking that it is important to be able to talk more to the other side, but they don't know how to do it. And I don't think the, the, uh, the left knows how to do it either. I think this is a question of presidential leadership and Trump is not interested in doing that. Uh, he's, I think he's calculated that he can win re-election with 45% of the vote. After all, the two out of the last three presidents, Trump and George W. Bush, were elected without um, winning the popular vote. You don't have to get to 50% anymore. You've got two dug-in sides with about uh, 42, 43% of the vote. If you had a credible third-party candidate, that would split, split the vote further. And even as it was with the um, Libertarians and the Green Party, they comprised 5% of the vote, and that was enough to tip the election. So does it make sense for the Democratic Party in 2020 to, to try to appeal to the middle or to do like the president's doing and appeal strongly to their base and hoping they can get enough uh, of 50% plus one? Well, good question. To win the nomination of either party now, you have to go to the extremes. Um, you know, the left has to cater to its base and the right to theirs. And then you, somehow you... The, the challenge is uh, how to work yourself back into the middle without being called a hypocrite. And um, the, the people making the, most of the noise on the left now, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, um, Kamala Harris from California, Cory Booker from New Jersey. There are a couple of self-proclaimed Democratic Socialists about to be elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. So they have a constituency too. So how did we get to that point? That uh, you always hear writers say that the, most people are in the middle, but the power is at the extremes. Yes, yeah. Because you have to win over the base uh, to get the nomination. Those are the party activists. Um, who get the ball rolling for you, and it's a, it's, it's a really delicate dance to get back to the middle. So how can both parties use your book as a tool in the next election? Well, I, I think unifying the country is, is you know, as, as, as a voter, that would be my top priority. And um, I don't want to start to get preachy here or sound like I'm running for office myself, you know. Uh, but I, I guess I do sort of hope that this book, which is about listening, it's listening reporting, I, I guess I do hope that it might in a small way 
contribute to dialogue. But the, but the real way we're going to get there is through presidential leadership. This is a leadership issue. And unless a president or presidential candidates talk about it, um, I don't think it's going to get done. Have you gotten much reaction to your book in northeastern Pennsylvania? Well, I went back there uh, to, to the Luzerne County a week after it was published and uh, did a couple of events in, uh, at, a lo at the local bookstore and at uh, Penn State Hazleton. And uh, there was a lot of interest. I think there's some uh, local pride at being uh, featured in a book. And uh, it was really nice to see the, uh, the voters, I mean, the, uh, the, the people that I featured in the book. And they were all, you know, being interviewed and uh, I think <laughs> enjoying their little star turn. And uh, it was nice to get back there. Well, one last thing I want to ask about is a, a word that is new to me, and that is hainabonics. Can you explain what hainabonics <laughs> is? Well, apparently, people in Luzerne County have a funny way of uh, talking. Um, and there's a, uh, a YouTube. Somebody told me about uh, different figures of speech that they use in the context of being attracted to Trump who himself uses words like, uh, you know, big league and, or big Lee. And uh, they thought that his uh, informal manner of uh, speech was, uh, made him more relatable uh, than, say, Hillary, who spoke more formally. And uh, there's, I for, I've forgotten, if you have it in front of you, maybe you can help me out, but the, there are some uh, phrases, turns of phrase. We have jeet, no, Jew? Yeah. <laughs> did you eat or no, did you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it turns out that, that uh, there's a YouTube video of this that shows a, uh, a mock professor teaching a class how to uh, speak hainabonics. You're working on another book? No, not yet. I'm out flogging this one. <laughs> Well, we've been speaking with Ben Bradley, Jr. He is the author of this book, The Forgotten, How the People of One Pennsylvania County Elected Donald Trump and Changed America. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.